Hello, Renoites listeners, and welcome to this week's episode of Renoites. My name is Connor McWibby. I'm your host, as always. This is the podcast where I talk to all kinds of folks who are doing interesting and important things in Reno. And this week's episode is with Tabitha Mueller, who is the housing reporter for the Nevada Independent. This episode is all about affordable housing. Tabitha and I talked about different policies to try to increase the amount of affordable housing in Reno, what our local, state, county governments are doing or not doing to affect housing prices, ideas like rent control, accessory dwelling units, all kinds of reforms that might help with these issues. It was a really great conversation and such an important one. Housing affordability is a huge issue in northern Nevada right now, not just in northern Nevada, but around the country. But we're definitely feeling it here in the Reno area. So I was very glad to have Tabitha on the show to talk all about affordable housing. This week's episode is brought to you by DJ Trivia Sierra Nevada. I host trivia several nights a week at different venues around town for DJ Trivia. Super, super, super fun way to spend an evening. If you haven't come to play, I hope that you will soon. You can find all the locations at djtrivianevada.com. We have over 20 games a week, Sunday through Thursday. There's probably one at a bar or restaurant in your neighborhood. So check out the list of venues. That's djtrivianevada.com. Find a venue you like, find a host you like, and come out and play. This episode is also brought to you by This Is Reno. This Is Reno is one of my favorite local news sources. Local journalism is super, super, super important especially around so many of these issues like politics, like housing, things that really matter to our quality of life here in the Reno area. And This Is Reno does a great job of reporting on all of those local issues. You can find them at thisisreno.com or social media, Instagram and Facebook. I follow them there. Also, podcasts. They have started doing a, I think, bi-weekly podcast series. Bob Conrad is doing a really great job with that as well. So please support This Is Reno. Again, that's This Is Reno. If you'd like to support the show financially, that would be incredible. I have recently updated my Patreon account. Patreon is a platform that allows supporters, listeners, consumers of content to support content creators. On my Patreon, you can sign up at several different levels from as low as three bucks a month. I call that one the tip jar. Basically, if you listen to the show and you feel like you would throw a buck an episode in the tip jar, you can sign up on Patreon and just do it automatically. Three bucks a month. That helps support the show, and it just feels really nice, I think, for listeners to let me know that they appreciate the work that I'm doing, enough to throw a couple bucks in the tip jar. At different levels, there's also bonuses, things like stickers, merchandise, t-shirts, so please check it out. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Renoites. And an extra special shout out to my VIP level patrons who are really helping financially support the show. I'm super, super grateful. Thank you so much to Emily from Growing Up Reno Tahoe Magazine. That's a quarterly magazine for families in the Reno area. Hope you can find a copy of that. And thank you to Vicky from DJ Trivia for financially supporting this show as well. I'm incredibly grateful for your support on this project. Also shout out Ben, Joaquin, John, Rachel. Thank you so much for being VIP patrons and helping this show be financially sustainable. If you have any feedback about this episode or any guest suggestions, reach out and let me know. Send me an email, send me a message on social media, on Instagram and Facebook. It's at Renoites, or just shoot me an email. It's Connor, C-O-N-O-R, at Renoites.com. I love to hear from listeners. I love your feedback. I want to make sure that I am making the best show I possibly can. So let me know what you think. And now this week's guest to talk about affordable housing, it's Tabitha Mueller. Tabitha Mueller, housing reporter for the Nevada Independent. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's really exciting to have you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk about housing. Yeah, it's like obviously one of the biggest issues that we're dealing with in the city of Reno. On this season, I had an episode with the mayor. We talked about affordable housing a little bit. And it's just one of the things that's top of mind, I think, for so many people in Reno. So to start, can you just tell me a little bit about the reporting that you do on housing? So you work for the Nevada Independent and you are studying and reporting on a lot of things that are happening in the housing market in Nevada, both Southern and Northern. Can you just tell me a little bit about the reporting that you do? Yeah. So I cover a lot of different topics at the Nevada Independent, which is an online, nonpartisan, independent news site. Uh, We don't have a paywall, so anybody can come and read any of the articles that will probably be discussed today. And my reporting kind of consists of a lot of different things. 
uh, monthly, I sort of report on here is the here's what the housing prices are, here's what the increases and decreases, but also trying to contextualize them and place them in the broader scope of the history of Nevada and say, you know, look, these are this is how this relates to, say, five years ago or 10 years ago. In addition to that, I look at different laws and actions on what, you know, what lawmakers are talking about to solve this affordable housing crisis, as well as more local initiatives, whether that's from the shelter that the city of Reno constructed or even local discussions of rent control or rent ordinances. So it kind of runs the full gamut when we're talking about housing. To start, can we talk a little bit about what affordable housing means? Because I think that is a, it probably means something different to everyone, but there's a real definition for what affordable is, right? So when we're talking about affordable housing, I think there's a lot of different definitions and a lot of uses that people will talk about. There's actual affordable housing, which is, you know, defined by HUD and has like mandated for certain income levels. But generally, when I'm talking about affordable housing and how we'll be using it in this discussion is sort of housing and the housing prices at about 30 percent of somebody's income. So that's generally the benchmark for when we're talking about whether housing is affordable or not. Got it. Okay. And we all know that housing is really expensive. What has been going on in recent years that has contributed to that? I've heard, you know, that it's just greedy landlords trying to capitalize on the opportunity that there's red tape to building affordable projects. So we're not building things that are affordable. What's, what feeds into this increase in the rents? So essentially, when you take a look at what's happening right now with supply chains and all of those problems, those are also affecting the housing market. So building housing is really difficult right now. It's expensive. It's also that when you talk about an affordable housing project aimed at somebody making 60% of area median income or a lower income individual, it's expensive and those projects often are difficult to pencil out. So developers don't necessarily have the incentive to always build those projects. Mm -hmm. It's also that we have a shortage of housing just in general. And so what kind of economics tells us is that if you have a shortage in some good or like a product, the prices are going to rise because more people want it. So in this state, we've seen an increase in population overall. As more people have come into Reno, the housing shortage has meant that there's less access to housing driving up the costs of that. I can also mm -hmm. rephrase that if that's helpful. <laughs> no, no, that makes perfect sense. And I mean, did we, did we not expect people to come to Reno? Is this a failure of planning to build in advance of the people arriving? I'm sure it's very difficult to balance, you know, the housing stock versus the the need. But right. is that something that you think we should or, or could have been aware of? Um, you know, where's that disconnect come from? It's really difficult because we also during the pandemic saw kind of a halt in construction, right? Like things mm -hmm. slowed down tremendously. We were not sure what was going to happen. There were all these predictions about the real estate market was going to crash because nobody would buy homes. In fact, we kind of saw the opposite, right? Mm -hmm. People were staying at home and I had multiple interviewers saying, look, you're stuck in a house with your family. You decided maybe I want something bigger. Maybe I want something nicer. Um, mm -hmm. So we saw a lot of movement. It was also that people could work remotely. So if you're working somewhere, maybe in like a nicer part of California and you you see the rent prices here in Reno and also the lack of state income tax. Boy, let me tell you, Reno looks pretty good. But one caveat to that, because I've heard a lot of people say, oh, Californians are just coming in and moving into Reno and driving up our rent prices. Reno hasn't grown as much as other parts of the state. And so it has grown, but not to the same degree. And I think part of this, when we're talking about what you asked me earlier, is to say, Reno has kind of a limit on how much we can expand. Think about the fires that happened last summer. Mm -hmm. So many people, you know, are on the edges of the city. The city can't provide all of the resources that are necessary. You're talking about sewer line expansions. And so it's kind of a funding problem as well as a land problem combined with this issue of supply chains and you know, it takes a long time to kind of get through some of the bureaucracy that developers are facing when they're looking at building housing, let alone affordable housing. Mm -hmm. Is density a big part of the solution to that, do you think? Like utilizing the existing infrastructure and building up instead of out? So I think that's like a big one that, that uh, 
a lot of experts are talking about is building infill, building up, not building out, using the existing space, right? And and all of the city council candidates in the last election cycle when I was interviewing them discussed that, right? We, we know that it's expensive to build out. We have empty lots or buildings. And so rehabilitation, infill, that's kind of the gold standard is what people want. Yeah. Are there incentives to make that happen or is that more economically viable? Like you mentioned that it's the incentives to build affordable housing sometimes are not there. Is it easier for developers to build more dense infill than it is to use, what is it, they call it green space or something like further out that's undeveloped? Is it easier or better or are there incentives to do the kind of infill building that we need? So there are definitely incentives and there are housing tax credits, but essentially you can get tax credits to build affordable housing or to build lower income housing or a certain percentage of units for families that might be lower income or what have you. Those do exist. And there is a new project from the state government that's coming in that's saying, hey, we will help partly use ARPA funding, which is the American Rescue Plan dollars, to sort of fund some of these projects and get housing more accessible. But it's difficult, right? Like, even with those incentives, it's still expensive. Mm-hmm. There's been this boom and bust cycle in Reno before. We were hit really, really hard in the recession in 2008. But things have changed a lot since then. I think a big driver of that was the tourist economy. We were still very much a gaming and tourist specific economy. I think we've diversified a lot since then. So that factor is not as significant. But there are some people who compare this, you know, super, super high housing prices to right before we had a housing crash. Do you think that there are similarities that we need to worry about or how is it different now than it was then? Oh, boy, that is the million dollar question, I think. Is it going to (laughs) crash? Is it going to crash? So, I mean, any industry and and here's the thing is I do not work in I am not a uh, what is it? Soothsayer, predictor, (laughs) anything of that nature. But, you know, I think that there are a lot of differences between what we were seeing during the Great Recession and what we're seeing right now. I think a lot of this is driven in part by inflation. I think that the pandemic did put a halt on a lot of production and supply. Last year during the legislative session, I chatted with Carson City Assessor at the time, Dave Dolly, and he said he didn't expect a similar housing bubble to pop but that there would be some cooling off of the market. Now, we've heard this from a lot of people. I don't know when this cooling off is going to happen because we see every, I feel like every month it's a new headline of rents are rising and you're, mm-hmm. or housing prices increase. And you're like, great, here we go again. You know, back in 2008, that was really fueled by predatory lending, a lack of regulation. And this is different because, you know, they address that predatory lending, that lack of regulation. This is really low supply, high demand and an imbalanced housing market. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that these prices are sustainable for our region. And what I mean by that is I think there comes a point where people can't pay $1 million, $2 million for, you know, a four bedroom house located in Reno. Mm -hmm. Is there a risk of people being pushed further and further out of Reno and it being kind of a commuter situation where a lot of people are living in Fernley or Fallon or these, you know, cheaper places that I mean, they're getting expensive, too. But is that kind of the natural result if there it continues to get this expensive that we start to displace more and more people? So I know the Reno Sparks Association of Realtors put out a press release actually, I think a few days ago, talking about this and how they're expecting the markets in the surrounding areas of Reno to increase. I also think my my colleague, Jackie Valley, who covers a lot of different issues at the Nevada Independent, but she wrote about families leaving Reno because it was too expensive. So mm-hmm. in short, yes, I think yeah. we are going to see more people pushed out. I think you're going to also see people cohabitating more. You know, if you can rent a three bedroom house with and you're a single person with two other people, that's a lot more cost effective than maybe a $1,500 a month apartment. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, the other places that I lived too. I lived in Portland for a little while and in the Bay Area, and I didn't live in San Francisco. I lived in Oakland, and then I lived in El Cerrito. And when I lived in Portland, I did live close in for a while. But everyone that I know between when I lived in Portland in like the early 2010s to now, they all live further and further and further away from downtown. But the thing is, is there's this question because Reno is such a central hub for activity. And it feels like the further out you go, I've heard from different interviewees that it's harder to maybe find things to do, especially as a young person, besides Mm -hmm. maybe outdoor hikes or, you know, adventures, that kind of thing. So I think the amenities and the accessibility the city offers will play a role in whether people decide to sort of meet those increased prices or move further out. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Um, Reno is becoming more of a renter city, I think. Uh, I don't know if that's changed a lot over time, but it seems like more and more people live in apartments than own homes now. I want to say it's the majority are renters in Reno. I don't know if that's always been the case. Is that something that has been part of the conversation over time, too, is more and more people are forced to rent? Are there also kind of like big industrial buyers of real estate? These big property manager companies I hear like buy up a lot of the property and turn it into rentals. Is that part of the reporting that you do? And like, as far as affordable housing, how much of the focus do you think is on housing prices for purchasing houses and how much is on rent? Because both of those are very important to a lot of people in different ways. How do you kind of report on both of those things and and see priorities in them? Yes, we are seeing a lot of people renting. If I had a dollar for every time someone I interviewed or people that I was chatting with, and I'm sure it's the same for you and your listeners, I really want to buy a house. A lot of people have down payment assistance saved up, but they they can't find anything within their price range because they don't have cash or they can't meet whatever requirements. Um, it's also partly, you're right, it's people purchasing homes as using them as investment homes, essentially second homes that they rent out. The Culinary Union released this notice saying that the top 10 apartment owners in Nevada own 26.4% of total available units. And the largest owner in the state is the Westland Real Estate Group, which is a company based in Long Beach, California. And when we're talking about it, oftentimes people will talk about these mom and pop landlords. And and you're right, like, you know, you own one investment home, maybe, or you have somebody that has an extra place or, you know, space in their their house that they own that they rent out. But there are a lot of people purchasing properties. And I think the Washington Post has done some coverage, too, of a couple different companies that have been doing this. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that can be done to control for that? Do you think that's a risk to our housing prices when you have, you know, not necessarily a monopoly? I mean, there's obviously a variety of landlords, but having that kind of control over the rental market in fewer hands, is that something to worry about or something that the city or state needs to address? I know that that's one thing that a lot of people are concerned about. And and here's the thing is we're talking about landlords, there's a wide variety of different landlords. And I've I've heard from different renters who I've interviewed saying, look, my landlord's great. They only raised my rent, like the cost of inflation. You know, that's awesome for me. But the problem is, is that's not necessarily the, that's the exception, not necessarily the rule, right? right? Yeah, I don't, I don't uh, think we can solve the housing crisis just resting on like the generosity the, of small landlords. And so I think that it is something that is going to probably play a large role in the discussion during the 2023 legislative session. And this is something that landlords are being asked about. I know there are questions about apartment application fees. So when you put in a $50 fee for, say, a $900 apartment, but then you never hear back, what does that mean, you know? Let's talk about rent control. That is one of the things that has been proposed a lot, and I know that you have an article coming out or or just come out about rent control and you've done a lot of research on it. So there's this debate of whether or not, I guess, two questions, does it work? First of all, before we talk about who can do it, how we can do it, where does rent control work? I know it's been tried a lot of places, so that's part one. And then the other part is say, we're going to do some rent control in Reno. How do we do it? Because right now it seems like the city says, Oh, we can't do that. And the state legislatures, you know, every other year and don't seem to have, that much energy towards it. Right. So, uh, so yeah, tell me about rent control. Does it work? Should we do it? And if we're going to do it, how the heck do we do it? So I think that it's interesting because this is not the first time the discussion of rent control has come up in Nevada. 
in the 1970s or 1980s, mobile home parks actually had a huge upswing in rent prices. And it was so bad that residents started to coalesce and they were like, okay, they formed an association. They went to the Reno City Council and the Reno City Council punted it. You know, they said, we don't really have this or they voted it down. It was a whole issue. And if you want, you can read about it in this article that's coming out or that will probably be out when you're listening to this. But as this came up, there was a report on the situation and it talked about how local governments and the state punted the issue between them. And I quote, like a hot potato. And that is what we are seeing now. It was so funny when I read this report because I was going, history must repeat itself, right? Like... We're seeing the same thing today. Mm -hmm. And so in that kind of punting between state and local governments, I think the short answer here is that there's no clear permission to local governments. The way that Nevada works is that local governments need permission from the state government to do anything. Now, in 2015, the state legislature did say that local governments could enact policies related to matters of local concern. Interpretations by a lot of people, including the Legislative Council Division, say, hey, this is a matter of local concern. The problem is, is that the language didn't explicitly say that local governments could enact policies related to housing affordability Mm -hmm. and local governments don't want to get sued. So the local governments say we interpret the housing affordability crisis as not a matter of local concern. This is a matter of regional concern. So the city of Reno, their interpretation is essentially that they would love to do something about it, but this is something that the county needs to take on. And when I went to the county to ask for them, they are like, we don't have any formal or official rules about this. And, you know, it's kind of a gray area for them. Mm-hmm. And they also don't want to get sued, right? They don't want to get sued. So it's not really something that happened. Now, in 2019, former sen- state senator Julia Ratty, she's the Democrat from Sparks. She actually tried to get the state government to clarify this. She put it forward in multiple measures, but those measures all kind of fell through. So it's really unclear and undefined. There's no rule saying they can't, but there's no specific rule saying they can. Hmm. And I know you asked me about the pros and cons of rent control and how can it work. So I will give you what I've discovered through research, and then people can make up their own minds on what kind of seems reasonable. I will say when we're talking about rent control, there are are a lot of, that's a wide range of policies, right? That could be anything from you can't raise any rent to we're going to limit the rent caps to 5% or the uh, consumer price index. Mm -hmm. Basically, when we are looking at rent control, I think that there are a couple of arguments that are against it. And I'll just kind of lay out those different sides. Um, and a couple arguments that are for it. So supporters kind of say rent control can alleviate this immediate pain caused by scarcity. It can con- curb excess rent hikes and can just help people that are looking at either being forced to move or somehow spending an exorbitant amount of money to stay in the place where they're currently living. Critics of rent control, though, say that it could disincentivize property owners from maintaining or improving units. It could reduce investment in rental properties and negatively affect the free market. Mm -hmm. There is some consensus, though, that the policies can act as kind of short-term solutions to the displacement of lower-income tenants, even if they're not that silver bullet to fix the housing crisis. I think Mm -hmm. that's the big thing is that rent control can be a temp... It's sort of seen as a temporary solution, but it's not going to be the be all end all for solving this rent crisis. And it's going to take, and I was uh, speaking with a couple advocates, but they were talking about how you got to have multiple trains leaving the station when we're talking about this issue. One thing is not going to solve it, but you can try a variety of approaches, say, to, to kind of address the problems. Yeah, that makes sense. With rent control, I understand that argument that it will disincentivize investment. Like if a landlord can't make any more rent on their property, they're not going to put more money into it. And the other argument that I understand is that it does 
which is a both a plus and a minus that it slows the mobility of you know between people moving from apartments i've known people i had know people who have rent controlled apartments in the bay area and they are not going anywhere because they because why they're locked in and they've got this great deal but in the that's great for them but in the long run it's not actually helping the average price of rent in san francisco but it does seem like like you said, not a a solution to actually bring down the overall cost of housing. But if it does kind of slow the displacement and slow the rent increases and and curb it kind of in that short term, like it's very much seen as a short term solution, which doesn't mean that it's necessarily a bad solution or a good solution. That's just kind of how where the consensus exists on it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that it was interesting when I was doing research on rent control, the history of Nevada in, in the 1970s and 1980s, There was an op-ed written in the Reno Evening Gazette that essentially said, we just need something. We just need, whether that's rent control, whether that's just getting more housing built, whatever that is, we need to help people today, not in three years, not in five years. And I think that's a sentiment that we're seeing a lot right now. Mm -hmm. And is rent control one of those more like viable today options? Like, obviously, we need more housing. But that takes a lot of time. Rent control is something that, you know, still takes a little bit of time, but it's something that can probably pass a lot faster than building thousands of units. And I think that's what we're hearing from a lot of advocates right now. I mean, uh, the Culinary Union recently launched an initiative focused in North Las Vegas to rent controls that you couldn't exceed more than 5% increase year over year because they said 21% of respondents to a survey they sent out had their rent increased by more than $500. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think that advocates are saying, look, I get it. This may not be a long-term solution, but something needs to be done now. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's popular across the state, right? Doesn't polling show that most people in Nevada support some kind of rent controls? Yeah, about I think it's 65%, according to a recent poll that we did at the Nevada Independent. And uh, that's across demographics and across party lines, too. That includes both Democrats, Republicans, and nonpartisans. Well, that's good to know. I'm a big fan of anything that's popular seems to generally be good politics. If it's uh, if it's that popular, hopefully the city council will see that as a, a political win as well as a win for, for the folks. Yeah, and I think that a lot of people are, you know, we're hearing every city council meeting, or not every city council meeting, but most city council meetings, rent control, affordability, housing issues have popped up in those, in public comment. Mm-hmm. So what other what other trains do we have to send out of the station? What other solutions are there kind of in that bucket? If one's not going to do it, what other things could we be taking action on to to address the affordable housing crisis? So I think there's a lot of different things that people have proposed in the past. Um, there are also things that are on the table now. To kind of sum it up, I think other trains that could be leaving the station, so to speak, are like housing vouchers and increasing the supply of housing, increasing specifically the supply of affordable housing, making sure that developers have additional funding or tax credits or tax breaks to make sure that they can build the housing that they need. I know there's initiatives from the the state government saying, hey, we can help buy land or we can contribute this money to this issue. I know that For individuals that are really struggling with rent, there is rental assistance available. And then also lawmakers during the last session proposed bills that were related to zoning, right? Like allowing for multifamily zoning, letting Mm. people build but accessory dwelling units so that you could theoretically have parents living in a house and then a small mini house in the back for somebody else or tiny homes, right? Mm-hmm. There, there are all sorts of approaches to this problem that I think people are looking at. It's just a matter of what can pass. I know that another issue like I raised was um, apartment rent application fees, right? Like if I was somebody that owned an apartment it might behoove me to just put it up and accept a bunch of application fees, but not actually rent it out to anybody. I mean, I'm sure if you were, if an application fee is $50 and you get 10 applicants a week, like that's a lot of money within a month. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's shady. So is that something that is currently being discussed or is that something that is actually being addressed? 
It's something that I've heard from a lot, again, advocates, and it's less something that I'm hearing at kind of the state level or the city level for addressing. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, we've also heard about, you know, rent gouging, finding ways to sort of make it so that residents have rights. I mean, Nevada is a very landlord friendly state. We have so many rules that don't protect the tenant. Um, I think that there's a lot of advocacy for tenant protections. I don't know how much you know about summary evictions, but there is a kind of a fast track process for landlords to evict a tenant in which tenants have to be the first person to file in court, not necessarily the landlord, which I've never heard of in any other state. I know there were there were some laws that were brought up. They did not pass to look at getting rid of that process. So there's a lot of initiatives, a lot of movements, but I think right now what kind of advocates are looking at is saying, okay, where are the spaces that we need the most help and the most aid? Where are Mm -hmm. people especially struggling? There's also that kind of middle income earners who may not qualify for low income housing or any of the housing vouchers that come with it, but are struggling because their wages haven't kept up with the increase in rent prices. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I understand that that is like a pretty large portion of the challenge for this affordable housing conversation is that there is that middle ground where you're not qualifying for the things that would help you, but you definitely don't make enough money for the current market rate. Just to put this into context, I think what we need to talk about is how much rent prices have increased and what they are right now. Mm-hmm. So here in Nevada, and I'll keep it to northern Nevada because I know that's most of your listeners, we've seen double digit increases since 2020 across the state. In northern Nevada specifically, rent is about $1,500 a month across all apartment types. That's nearly 24% increase compared with prices two years ago. So when we're talking about that general affordable housing benchmark that we discussed earlier, 30% of someone's gross income before taxes or other deductions, to afford that average asking rent in northern Nevada you would need to make about $60,500 a year. And the median household income in Reno is about $60,000. So that means the average apartment rent is considered unaffordable for roughly half of the city's households. Mm -hmm. I think it just shows that when we're talking about these rent increases, it is drastic, right? It's not just, Mm -hmm. oh, rents are increasing at the same way that like gas is going up or my like, the price of overall consumer goods is going up. No, these rents are increasing at higher rates than we have seen in the past. I will add the caveat, though, that the Nevada Apartment Association has said that they're seeing a slowdown in the increase in rents. But I don't like right now, I have not seen that yet. So Mm. they're they're expecting it to drop, but that's not but we don't know that for sure. Yeah. And I would have to assume that there must be some natural kind of like stasis point that we will reach where people literally cannot afford the apartments and the rents have to come down. And I think that's part of the conversation with some of the newer construction, too, of these like luxury apartments, whatever luxury means. And this is something I hear a lot from people about the building that is happening. And I'm really curious your take on this of if not all we're seeing, but we'll say most of what we're seeing be built is these market rate, more upscale buildings, and most people can't afford them, but they're still getting rented. People are moving here. They're, I don't know what the vacancy rates are on them, but do they help this situation? I know the argument is we need to build affordable housing, but a lot of people say we need to build anything. And if you build all the luxury housing, eventually, at some point, all the rich people will move up to the fancier place and open up a little bit of room in the market. Uh, It's a very basic kind of like supply and demand argument. But I also am very skeptical of it's effectively trickle down theory that I think we're rebranding. So what do you think about all of the newer luxury apartments? Are they helping the situation? Is it because the incentive is there and we just need to kind of adjust the incentives if we want to change it rather than trying to shame developers out of building fancy things. I don't know. How does how do those buildings fit into the picture? So as of 2019, it looks like the rental vacancy rate for Reno was about 3% according to the ACS census, the American Community Survey census. So that's really low. Um, and, and as you noted, uh, what 
kind of economists or what we've heard a lot from city officials is we just need more housing because the idea is, is people will move into it and then that housing will be free or it will go lower. There's an argument, though, that just letting that happen is not actually going to solve the solution. When we saw the 1,000 Homes in 120 Days program, which led to the proposal of a lot of developments that are happening now, most of those were not affordable. The critique of that is that if you do not build affordable housing, housing prices are not going to naturally come down in a short time frame to what residents can actually pay. You know, it's funny because I think a lot of people say, well, builders should just build affordable housing. I mean, if you are a builder, what like why would you build an affordable housing and maybe barely break even or make a little bit above market when there is a demand for luxury apartments or really nice housing that you can make a good penny off of, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that a lot of people, when we're talking about this issue, are calling for apartments that are mixed development for low-income families, and maybe you have luxury homes, and and developers could get tax credits for that. The problem is, is we have, it's called a not in my backyard mentality, right? So people Mm -hmm. don't necessarily want to live with people who are lower income or, you know, what have you, because they have stigmas against them. Yeah. How do we, how do we fix that? Is that just a cultural issue of teaching people to live better with people that are different than them? I mean, this, uh, this is effectively a segregation argument that we've been having (laughs) since the beginning of time. Right. And I mean, even with, even with anti-segregation laws in, you know, the sixties and seventies, I mean, we still see the effects of segregation today. You know, there are still families like, People of color do not own homes at the same rates as white people, right? Like, I, I think that that's always going to kind of be an issue and and something that, that people on city council are going to have to navigate, you know? Do, like, who holds the most political power, right? Uh, is it people who don't, who don't want, you know, more mixed-use development or apartments or building up next to them? Is it people that are looking for these apartments? And, and, you know, who kind of, who do politicians sort of lean toward? Mm -hmm. Um, I wish I knew how to fix that. Are there levers that the city can pull to encourage that kind of mixed development and and prevent the, you know, these developments that are purely geared towards uh, a very, like, exclusively richer tenant rather than having these mixed use where they're integrating into the communities? I mean, I think that there's been some advocacy on that. And and you have seen some of the Reno City Council, some efforts from them to say, we're going to try and work with the Nevada treasurer to help fund new apartments, affordable apartments. But I think it's a matter of local people putting pressure on government to get the attention that they need. You know, we've heard so many people calling now into the state legislative meeting saying, hey, you know, I had my rent increase. What can you guys do about it? Or this is a problem. And if there was like a magic solution, somebody would have waved their wand and already solved it already. But I think that in the 1970s, you had a lot of tenant laws that were passed for mobile home renters because they formed a union. They got together. They said, hey, this is not okay. And and they actually elected Reno's first female mayor, who was a mobile home tenant. And she did a lot of work for welfare and lower income individuals. So I think you can't discount people in these situations and, and everyday citizens. And I know, and, and, you know, as a reporter, like my job is to kind of take in information and sort of deliver it in a way that people can understand what's happening. I was talking with uh, Lily Barron, I think associate policy director with the ACLU. And she was talking about how we're at a point now where individuals are so frustrated where so many people, not just lower income individuals, I mean, I know people who are consider themselves middle class that are struggling with rent increases, but there's so much frustration and anger and just something needs to happen now that they will do everything they can to make sure that change takes place. 
Mm-hmm. Is there much movement towards things like renter unions and housing co-ops and land trusts? I know that one of our county commission candidates established, I think, the first, maybe the only land trust here in northern Nevada. And that's kind of a unique model that maintains a lower cost mm-hmm. for the housing. Uh, I don't exactly know how it works, but you mentioned kind of the the things that the people can do. What's the status on some of those things? Are you seeing that actively occurring in Nevada? So I have not yet. I know that different groups have gotten together and formed a Nevada uh, housing justice coalition. And there's mutterings, I think. I've heard some individuals talking about tenants unions or a renter, you know, association, but nothing concrete that's happened beyond what we've what I've already talked about in terms of what we're seeing maybe with the culinary union or other groups. Mm -hmm. How do you think the city's doing with communication about all these issues? Because I know they held a affordable housing town hall type event that Anjanette Damon hosted, and it had some developers and folks from the city and housing advocates. Do you think that the communication has been there? Uh, I know that, you know, a lot of housing justice people are speaking at city council public comment sometimes. Uh, There's a lot of good reporting, obviously, about these things that are going on. How is the communication, do you think, between all of the various parties that are involved in these complex decisions? So I think that there's the Reno City Council, to their credit, has started having special meetings for housing issues. They've started, I mean, like, they've been very communicative, I would say, at least in sort of the affordable housing uh, sphere. I think that there are some frustrations about what's happening with the CARES campus, that shelter that's um, kind of in the down near the downtown area, right? I think there's a lot of concerns about uh, safety there. And that's not necessarily a city issue. That's more under the purview of the county. And so I think that there has been good communication. What people are frustrated with right now is, I think, a stagnation in how the counties and cities have been addressing it. And that's just my mm-hmm. interpretation of what I've been seeing. But it's less about the communication and more about, well, what is happening, right? And and what is going on? And I think city council members, to their credit, have tried to say, look, we're working on developing this housing, but it's not going to be here for a little bit. Or Mm -hmm. our hands are tied on some of these issues, like, say, the issue of rent control, because the state government hasn't given them explicit permission. I think it's more frustration, and correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I think it's more frustration about what is happening right now versus something that will come online in a few months or or whatnot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I understand that. And I, I think that we hear that from the city a lot of, we're working on it, it's on the way, it's in the works, it's... We're just working on this funding thing. We're just working on this planning thing. We're working on this zoning thing. It's almost there. And I think that's been the story of the CARES campus is, you know, it opened last year with this promise of, oh, there's this huge plan and there's all these phases that are coming. And, you know, I understand that things take time, but I also understand the frustration where people have real needs now. And if there are things that can be done quicker and are not being done quicker, that can create a real sense of uh, a failure for the people who actually have the power, if they have the power, I guess that's the real crux of the question is, uh, you know, people who say they can't do anything right now, can they really be that landlords, be that government officials, like holding people's feet to the fire when they actually do have abilities to do things when they're not actually acting on that. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's hard to know whether those things are actually viable right now, or, you know, maybe we do have to be patient, which can be really hard. Right. And and I just think it's what we've been hearing all along. It's a mixture of different approaches to this problem that people are going to have to take. Mm-hmm. Is there anything from the, you know, we talked a little bit about the state level, but also is there things in federal housing policy that are contributing or could affect this? You mentioned there's, you know, there's money coming into the state for housing. So that obviously should make a difference if it's spent correctly. Um, how do like the bigger pictures of state and federal policy and money affect the housing here in Reno? It's interesting when you think about the federal, because federally, it would be hard to implement something, say, like rent control, because honestly, a blanket policy sometimes is not what states want. Mm -hmm. And so federally, I think what people are kind of asking for is funding, is support, is to say, hey, this is where this money is coming from. Saw protections for tenants come through in terms of evictions uh, in the eviction moratorium that was implemented. 
Um, so there are things that you can do at the federal level, but I think, and, and maybe this is just me talking as like more of a state level local government reporter, but I think that most of the changes or things that, you know, people want to see are going to be done at a more local level. Mm-hmm. And we mentioned ADUs earlier, but I wanted to come back to that because it's something that I'm particularly interested in as a potential solution because I'm very big on density. I'm very big on smaller and more affordable housing. I think part of the problem, I don't know if I'm right about this, this is just me guessing, but that our expectations of our homes in the last couple of generations have really exploded. Like everyone wants a big, full house with a yard and like people didn't used to live in big houses as much as we do now. So I I hate to be one of those people that said, oh, you know, back in the day, we weren't so needy about the things, but that might be part of it. So I'm generally an advocate for like smaller homes on smaller lots, more density, um, and ADUs kind of check all of these boxes. And there was an effort to have ADUs allowed. I, I don't know if they're allowed in certain places or not in Reno. It's not like a blanket ban on them, I don't think. Um, well, what's the deal? So I think I'd have to look at the exact zoning to be sure, but I think that you would need, you just need zoning permission to make that happen. Uh, I think a lot of people are big advocates of ADUs and say that this is going to be a big way to solve it. You know, during the legislative session, we saw a tiny homes bill come forward uh, that I think it was specific to Southern Nevada, but don't quote me on that. Uh, But essentially a lawmaker said, look, like I want to make sure that we have that local governments can zone for tiny homes if they so desire. I think one caution that I would have for advocates of, you know, tiny homes or ADUs is to make sure that when we're talking about them as far as affordability, they actually are affordable, right? We've seen some tiny homes that per square foot are more expensive than say a large house, right? Mm. So if I'm spending, you know, if I'm like, oh, you can rent a tiny home for $800 a month versus let's say 2,200 a month for a three bedroom, right? Like, Yes, 800 a month is obviously cheaper, but how many square feet am I getting for my 2200 a month house mm-hmm. versus my 800 a month tiny home or, yeah. or ADU or whatever it may be? Um, and I don't know if that's just me looking at like the number side of things because I tend to do that, but I think it's something that should be part of that conversation, especially when we're thinking, and I, and I do agree that you know, I, I like a yard and, you know, a place to let my cat go outside, you know? <laughs> so. Yeah, I get it. I, under, I understand the desire for that. It's natural to want a little more space and a little more freedom. Uh, but I do think that there are some economic costs that come along with Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Right? And that's part of the, that's part of the argument too with NIMBY, right? Not in my backyard. Like, I really like this and I don't want to see a large apartment complex built near me. You know, I lived in Japan for a little while and when I lived in the countryside, but even then we lived in very small apartments. You know, some families had homes, but you had a grandfather living with the parents living, you know, it was like multi-generational housing, mm-hmm. which gets back to your ADU. Cause I think a lot of advocates of ADU say, Hey, we can, you know, our grandmother can live here or my daughter can live here while she is you know, in between college and whatever comes next for mm-hmm. her. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is one kind of under-discussed benefit of the ADUs is it is a way to kind of help families if they're used in the way that they're intended. There's also the risk of, you know, ADUs being legalized in a lot more places and then turning into Airbnbs. And all of a sudden you have an entire country running unlicensed hotels out of their backyard, which doesn't necessarily solve any of the problems that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, One thing, too, that I think has been a topic of conversation is land is often very expensive for, you know, development of housing or affordable housing. And I think there are some people that are advocating for can we get funding to local governments to allow them to then either help pay for the land or like cover some of that cost so a developer may not have to necessarily eat it Mm. um, and then maintain that apartments or, or buildings built on that maintain affordability. So when you're given affordable housing tax credits, they are good for a certain number of years, then they expire. And that person can then put them back up to market rate. And so there's also ways that lawmakers and advocates and officials are looking at to keep 
affordable apartments, affordable in the long term versus just for a 15, 20 year thing as required by the housing tax credits. Okay, gotcha. So more long term planning. So we talked about like solutions that are good in the short term, but there also needs to be this like longer thinking about how do we maintain? Right. Because like if I just build an affordable housing unit, awesome. And then in 20 years, it goes up. And then I'm like, great, I can now rent these at market rate. That doesn't actually solve the problem in the long term. So I think there's, there's efforts to make that a long term solution, as well as some of what we've been talking about. Got it. Got it. This next question is probably a little bit niche and unrealistic, but I've read a little bit about land value taxes. And I know a big part of the problem with paying for all of this stuff is property taxes. And one proposal that I know is land value taxes or single taxes, where basically the only thing that we tax is the value of the land that you own. So if you own the really valuable land, that will incentivize you to develop it because you're going to be paying a lot of taxes on it. It's a different kind of incentive structure. Do you know anything about land value taxes? Georgism. I think part of this problem that you are alluding to and saying is we don't have really taxes in Nevada in the same way that we do other places, right? I think local governments are always talking about lack of funding. Um, A lot of the programs that they were able to set up, and we have to be realistic about it, was because of COVID, ARPA funding, all of those different sources uh, that were coming in through the aid of the federal government. And I think whenever you mention the tax word in Nevada, people kind of hackles go up, right? Mm -hmm. We, I would say that Nevada has a very, I don't want to say strong libertarian streak, um, because that might not be the right. I think that's pretty accurate. (laughs) I think that I often describe it that same way. Yeah, uh, maybe it's, maybe it's the, you know, like, I think across the political aisle, there's like a desire for the government not to get in my business, right? Mm -hmm. One of the draws of Nevada for a lot of people, lack of state income tax. Part of this, I think, is you would have to, it would be a political feat to get that implemented and remain in office if if somebody wanted to do that. Mm -hmm. And it would take a tremendous amount of effort. I do know that advocates of that say that it can be a way to mitigate some of the ways that rent, like the equity that people have gained on their property, on their land in relation to equity that renters have not gained. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of discussion about them, but I think in Nevada, it would be very difficult to implement it. However, I do know that there are people that are advocating for increases on taxes or, you know, how much we can revenue that the state or local governments can raise because in order to kind of address this problem, money has to kind of come from somewhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I figured that was kind of an impossible task, but I sometimes like these like vaguely utopian radical (laughs) ideas for changes because we have a lot of systems that are broken. We kind of assume that the way that we've been doing things for a long time must be the best way. So whenever I hear radical ideas for tax reform or electoral reform or whatever kind of reform, it always gets me a little curious about like, not can we do it? Because it's probably a very hard sell, but like, what if? Like, what would this look like in actuality? Right. And I I think it's, I think it's always good. And here's my take on like, I mean, I'm doing air quotes for anybody who is listening, (laughs) but radical ideas, I think can be a really good way to start thinking outside the box, right? Like what is different that we can think of? What might be an off the wall, crazy idea? And maybe we can't implement that, but that leads us to a different idea, right? Mm -hmm. If the part of the issue is, you know, if we do things exactly the same way, what is going to change? And I think that's what a lot of people are asking state lawmakers right now, asking city council members is, can we do something different? Just like Mm -hmm. that person in that 1970s op-ed, help needs to come now in some form or another. What can we do? Mm -hmm. Uh, What did we miss? What else do you want people to know about housing in Nevada from all the research? Oh, man. I feel like we covered a lot, but I'm sure there's... We've covered... There's there's so much to talk about. Oh, we didn't even talk about Jacobs. Let's talk about Jacobs. Oh, yeah. We got to talk about... We can talk about Jacobs, and we can also talk about... um, You were talking about... You brought this up, and I think it's an interesting conversation about these luxury apartments, will their prices go down? Oh yeah, red. No we got to talk about Jacobs and got to talk about red. We yeah. said the, the two <laughs> very, very big ones that everyone cares about for the very end of the episode, but that's okay. So we know the average apartment rent is $1,500, right? I talked about that earlier. 
I was talking with Brian Bonifant, who is at the Center for UNR's Regional Studies. It was a really interesting conversation. And what Brian kind of noted to me is that he doesn't think that those luxury apartments like the Reno Experience District, where I think they're asking something like $2,000 a month or, or maybe more for an apartment, will go down. What they will do is they will incentivize people to move in. So I know somebody that like moved into that apartment complex and they said they gave them like $1,500 and like a Visa card and the first three months of their rent free, for example. And so you're going to see deals like that where get the first two months free or don't pay the deposit or whatever it might be Mm -hmm. um, rather than those prices decreasing. What I'm curious though, and I don't have like an answer on this is I'm curious about what happens if people don't take those incentives. Right. 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 Um, And I think that either they'd be forced to move their prices down or try and sell So that's going to be something to watch and see what happens in the coming months or or years. Mm -hmm. And on the Jacobs front, there's two big pieces to that. The first one is motels are not ideal housing, but they were last resort housing. And Jacobs has taken a lot of them away. That is obviously a piece of the puzzle to increasing homelessness and rising housing prices. Like if we're losing inventory, that's an issue. I'm assuming I'll let you correct me if I'm (laughs) wrong on that. And then the other piece is we've already talked a little bit about it is what is actually being built and is it actually something that meets the needs of the people? There was a little talk about working with Reno Housing Authority to maybe build workforce housing right there in the in the online district. What's your take on the the impact of the Jacobs project on housing in Reno? I know that's a very big one. No, no, it's it's a great question. And I think that you have to understand that, yes, motels are not uh, maybe the ideal living situation, but they're one of the last remaining affordable options for people on fixed incomes, people with disabilities, social security incomes, And the kind of problem is now that they're gone, where can people that don't bring in a lot of money a month go to stay? And that was the big problem that happened with the motels and Jacobs. And and yes, a lot of these motels often fail inspections. They can be really dangerous living situations. I actually did my thesis in college on concepts of home. And, you know, and I talked with residents living in weekly motels, interviewing them and saying, what does home mean to you? What is it that you actually need that people may not be listening to? And it was so interesting because they talked about, you know, the the physical structure of the buildings and how, you know, there were bed bugs and it was decrepit. And but what became so apparent is like part of the issue that what people needed were connections, loved ones, being able to have their pets with them, being able to have easy access to grocery stores. And many of these motels, you know, they are located near the downtown area, near accessible places to go shopping for food, um, or at least get some help. And what happens when those go away? And so that was the big issue that we saw with, um, with kind of the demolishing of motels and the loss of motels over recent years. Mm -hmm. And then on the building side, there's, I was waiting for a very long time for them to finally get shovels in the ground on something. And they just broke ground on uh, some new project that I think it's 40 or 50 or 60 units, something like that was originally going to be over a hundred. Is Jacobs going to contribute to the housing supply in a way that is going to make a difference or help the city? I mean, that's again, asking you to, play Nostradamus a little bit. How do you think of the Neon Line's impact on housing? Assuming it gets built the way that they they talk about it, is that something that's going to make a positive contribution to the housing stock in Reno? You know, I don't know. I think that from a perspective of we just need units, it might help. From a perspective of every drop in the bucket counts, uh, I think that yes, right? Like, great, more units more competition, the supply-demand equation that we've been talking about. But from that perspective of do we have units that are guaranteed to be affordable, maybe not. Granted, this is all changing, right? Like Mm -hmm. Some of this is 
there's documents and they told us one thing and then now it's another and you mentioned it earlier. So so who knows what's going to come in the next X months or, or years. But I think we, what a lot of advocates are saying is, I don't know if that is enough. Mm-hmm. You know, if if we really need if we really need affordable housing it, and we really need this housing in general, what about combining it? You know, what, what can, what steps can we take to increase it? And I don't know. I think that that's, that has to be part of the conversation as we're talking about increasing supply, but it is a very politically tenuous tightrope that, that people have to walk, right? You have mm-hmm. developers on, on one side, you have tenants on another, you have landlords in play. Like there's just so many people that have a stake in what is happening. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, the last question I have for you, I guess, is how can people be most impactful in dealing with these things? So choosing to the best of, you know, to based on our limited options, where we live and how we spend our money is part of it. Uh, advocating to the government, but to the right government and in the right way, I guess, also matters for people who are on the the landlord or developer side. It's a lot of maybe business and ethical decisions about how you build. But let's say for the listener who is a regular old person, how do you think that people should be engaging in the conversation or in the actions around affordable housing? So I think it's important to know to have realistic expectations of what can get done when and who is responsible for what, right? When I was talking about rent control, theoretically, local governments have the control, but that's not stipulated in state law. So I don't know, right? Um, But advocacy, pressure, asking questions, staying in touch with local news organizations, also, if you have an issue, like reach out to reporters. Like we want to listen, whether that's the Reno Gazette Journal, whether that's the Nevada Independent or KUNR, the radio station, reporters are listening and we want to share these stories. But sometimes we don't know if there's an issue unless you tell us there is, right? Like I every day get so many things across my desk, but I always want to prioritize individuals' voices. What is the experience of people living in Nevada? What are their experiences as they're navigating life? Talking with your lawmakers, organizing, getting together, saying, what is it that we want? Who can we reach out to? Your lawmakers are supposed to work for you, (laughs) right? Um, And and so if they're supposed to work for you, theoretically, you should be able to get a hold of them. And part of this, I think, is an access to information problem, right? There's a disconnect between most people don't know who their assembly person is. Most people don't know who their senator is. Most people may not know which Reno City Council member is supposed to represent them. Start with that. Start branching out talking with these groups. ACLU of Nevada is a big organization, Nevada Legal Services, Plan, Action, the Realtors Association. Like there are all of these groups of people who advocate for their needs or the wants of their community. Find a group that you might affiliate with if you don't know where to start. It seems a little daunting, but I think that people need to get involved and it can be hard to do that. I I get that completely. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, how can people get in touch with you if they want to follow your reporting or be in touch? What's the best way for them to uh, to keep track? I am very responsive on pretty much every social media platform that I am on. So I'm on Twitter at Tabitha Mueller. So it's Tabitha underscore Mueller. And then I also am on Instagram, same handle at Tabitha underscore Mueller. Email Tabitha at the NVIndy.com. If you send me a message, if you reach out, I may not respond within minutes, but I will try and get back to you within a couple of days at the very latest. And I think that most reporters are that way. I think most people have their emails online, including legislators. So reach out and show up at city council meetings. And if you can't do that, there are ways to write in. I think sometimes it's hard because these sorts of forums happen during work hours and working families have a lot to navigate in addition to their everyday life. (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. I really appreciate episodes like this that are kind of 101, all of the details about how everything works, because I spend a lot of time on the internet and reading comments on social media, and a lot of people are mad about a lot of different things, and sometimes it really, really helps a lot to just like sit down with an expert who actually knows a lot of this stuff and get the scoop. So thank you so much for for taking the time for me and for our listeners. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And hopefully uh, we can continue having housing discussions as time goes on. It'll be interesting to see what happens in the 2023 legislature too, once elections are over. So Mm -hmm. excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. Listeners, thank you so much for checking out this week's episode of Renoites, and special thanks to my guest, Tabitha Mueller from the Nevada Independent. I really appreciated her taking the time to come on the show and talk all about affordable housing, since it is such an important issue for the Reno area. I learned a lot. I hope that you did, too. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and spread the word. Word of mouth means everything to a podcast like this. I've been doing the show a little bit over a year, and I I'm constantly reminding people that if they enjoy the show, they should tell their friends about it. There's tens of thousands of podcast listeners in Reno who have never even heard of Renoites. Apple's search algorithm is complete trash and fails to bring it up whenever people are searching for podcasts about Reno. So really, word of mouth is the only way for me to find more people who might appreciate this show. So tell your friends, tell your family, share posts. That's the best thing you can do. If you see my post on Instagram or Facebook about a current episode, hit that share button. It really does help people find the show and it's free. It's a free and easy way for you to help support local journalism like this. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you for sharing and have a great week.